Hey, everybody, I'm Julia Furlan, and this is the news from BuzzFeed News. This week, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh had a wild week on the Hill for his confirmation hearings. Then we'll get to the bottom of France's surprisingly high percentage of anti-vaxxers. And finally, a fake news quiz, because we want you to know everything. Ta-da! More drama on the third day of confirmation hearings for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. In Europe, cases of the measles have hit a record high. Britain's Guardian reports a British woman was rescued after falling off a cruise ship to the Adriatic Sea. I think it's safe to say the confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh were about as close to a circus as you can get in a courtroom. Here are the Cliff's notes for what went down this week. Judge Brett Kavanaugh sat all week for questioning by members of the U.S. Senate. He's nominated to take over Justice Anthony Kennedy's seat on the Supreme Court. Republicans are thrilled to have a chance for a second Supreme Court justice appointed by a Republican president. And Democrats are still pissed and ready to fight, even though they don't have the votes to prevent him from being confirmed. For the lead this week, we have legal reporters Chris Geidner and Zoe Tillman talking to Shawnee Hilton about all the things that went down and what it all means. We are recording this on Thursday evening. Give me a 30-second description of who Brett Kavanaugh is. Brett Kavanaugh is currently a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which is often referred to as the second highest court in the land because it deals with a lot of cases out of official government Washington and a lot of judges from that court go up to the Supreme Court. He's been there for more than a decade. Before that, he was a senior official in the Bush administration serving in the White House. Uh, just a longtime rising conservative star who's been on everyone's Supreme Court shortlist as long as he's been a judge. And so what did we see this week overall? I mean, what we saw this week overall is both the reality that the Democrats don't have the votes to stop the nomination unless they can convince multiple Republicans to break ranks, which doesn't appear to be a possibility. And then in the alternative, an attempt to sort of paint him as, as an extremist and to paint the process as unfair so that Democrats can hopefully politically use this for the upcoming elections and just to sort of change the perception, at least among their base, about the importance of the courts. I'm going to get back to that with you in a minute, Chris. But, you know, I think one feature of the week has been a really high level of uh, civil disobedience. And I have to ask, because you guys were in the room, what was it like being in the room with, you know, protesters being thrown out, you know, at regular intervals? There were sort of constant, a constant stream of disruptions throughout the hearings this week, this past week. About on. Uh, if, if, if you don't, you're concerned about unintended consequences, which is why it's so important to be. Okay. Um, 
so it was sort of some of it was specific to Kavanaugh and some of it was just more generally protesting the Trump administration and Kavanaugh as a manifestation of that. So there were a couple references to it. Some Republicans lamented the disruptions. Democrats sort of heralded it as a a part of the democratic process, uh, but it was certainly a constant feature throughout the week. What was the vibe? Were people receptive? Were they stunned? Were they quiet? Um, were they just waiting for the police to to grab the protesters and toss them out? No, I mean it. It was it was aggressive. By the time we got to the second day, especially the second afternoon, I mean there were sixty one people arrested for demonstrations in the room the first day of the hearing. So by the second day, they they basically had almost a dozen, I'd say. Capitol Police around the hearing room ready to literally grab them by their full body and pull them right out the door. The door is right on the side, and they were just ready to pull them right out the door. There were, I think, three from Wednesday, different people with limited mobility had their wheelchairs literally pulled out pulling them out uh, behind them. It was it was quite a scene. That's that's incredibly vivid. Um, so with that as the backdrop, and as you put earlier, you know, Democrats don't have the votes to block it, and they are seem unlikely to get Republican colleagues on board with blocking the confirmation. What is their strategy for these hearings? I think the strategy was to call attention to how some of the key issues that have come up within the Trump administration, um, how they can be addressed within the context of the Supreme Court. So it was a chance for Democrats to highlight their concerns about Trump's overreach of power, his abandonment of the rule of law, you know, raising that in the context of will Kavanaugh stand up to the president if a case comes before the Supreme Court where Trump is being accused of overstepping um, his bounds or the administration is being accused of of going beyond the law. All these issues that have come up in the context of the administration, I think this was a chance for Democrats to bring them up again and talk about how the courts also play a role in this. And it was a chance to just protest the Trump administration. It was a chance to show their bona fides as members of the resistance and opponents to the administration and whatever they're going to do, even if they can't actually stop Judge Kavanaugh from being confirmed to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, I think something that our D.C. bureau chief, uh, Kate Nocera, said was that, you know, we're seeing a lot of people running for president right from the from the dais. And what you saw was, you know, people like uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker taking a pretty strong stance. Um, Booker in particular talking about the way that the documents were released. Right. So on the second day or the third day of the hearing, the second day of Kavanaugh's questioning, Senator Booker, during the introduction, basically said there are all of these documents that have been designated as confidential, which, mean, which means they can't be released to the public. They can't be brought up in the hearings. I did willingly violate the chair's rule on the committee confidential process. Uh, I take full responsibility for violating that, sir. And I violate it because I, I sincerely believe that the public deserves to know this nominee's record. In this particular case, his record on issues of race and the law. There was some back and forth later in the day about whether Senator Booker was actually violating any rules. And, and it's gotten a bit messy about that. But I think there was this sense of senators using this very highly publicized hearing to make themselves known as outspoken 
uh, members of the opposition to the Trump administration who are willing to do more than just talk. This was an instance of the senator saying, I'm willing to put my career on the line to stand up for what I believe it was, was is right. The most frequently talked about issue this week was also the one that people started bringing up immediately after Justice Kennedy retired, which is abortion, uh, Roe v. Wade. And Dems have completely taken the stance that Kavanaugh will be a part of a process of overturning Roe v. Wade and that he is against women's rights. And and they've clearly staked out that claim. How did that play out over the course of the last few days? Basically, what Judge Kavanaugh said, and actually, I should start by saying that, you know, Judge Kavanaugh has not had a chance to rule on a major abortion case or really any abortion case in his, I believe, 12 years on the D.C. Circuit. Kavanaugh has had an opportunity to rule in one case that related to abortion, although it wasn't squarely about Roe versus Wade and the the overarching right to an abortion. This involved a pregnant, undocumented teenager who was in U.S. custody. She was pregnant. She wanted an abortion. The administration was blocking her from getting that abortion. Um, a lower court judge ruled in the teen's favor. And when it went up on appeal, the D.C. Circuit ended up ruling in favor of the teen. But Judge Kavanaugh wrote a dissent saying that he would have given the administration some more time to try to find a sponsor for the teen. So effectively delaying the time when she could get an abortion. Um, and that has been held up as an example of proof that Kavanaugh would be the a deciding vote to take a, a stab at abortion rights or try to chip away at abortion rights if he were confirmed. But he's never directly said how he feels about abortion. So at the hearing this week, there were a lot of questions about it. And what he basically said, and this is an answer that we've heard from many judicial nominees, is basically saying it's settled law. As a judge, it is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Been reaffirmed many times. Casey is precedent on precedent. But I think a question that he wouldn't answer and, you know, there was no expectation, it's not surprising he wouldn't answer it, is what would happen if abortion cases came before you in the future? It's just not a question that he or any nominee is, is going to answer in this context. So we just don't know, ultimately, what will happen if he's confirmed. Uh, another area, obviously, and one that prompted a really pointed but sort of murky exchange was between uh, Senator Kamala Harris and Judge Kavanaugh, in which she asked him if he ever discussed Robert Mueller and the Mueller investigation with members of Donald Trump's personal law firm. What was that? <laughs> well, we don't really know. Um, it was it was a, a really weird moment. Uh, it was well past the 12 hour mark of the hearing. And Senator Harris was one of the the last two people to go. And she asked a really general question about whether he had spoken to anybody about Mueller's investigation. He eventually said that he had spoken with other judges about it, but that was all that he knew of. And then she asked this very pointed question that was like, have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson and Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? It wasn't really clear if he was just genuinely confused by the question, if he didn't understand if, I mean, I think he felt that it was a trap question. He sort of was like, well, 
I felt that it was a trap question. Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, he, he was asking, like, do you have a person in mind? And she was like, I don't know. Do you? And it was this back and forth that was very weird. And I think, I mean, for, from my perspective, knowing her as a, a former prosecutor, I presumed that that she had the answer if she was posing the question. I expected that she was going to to tell us that, like, there was this member of the firm that he in February had talked with about Mueller's investigation and had questioned his authority or something. But that's not where it went. And it just sort of went back and forth. I mean, the problem was, while she didn't have any evidence to sort of say where this question came from, he also gave a really bad answer. Like he wouldn't give an answer. Like he didn't say, not that I know of. Uh, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch sort of came back and basically gave him an opportunity to clean up the answer. And he he gave an attempt at that and basically said, I, I don't remember having any conversation with anybody from that firm about it. I haven't had any inappropriate conversations about the Mueller investigation with any lawyer. But it was discomforting, (laughs) I think, to watch that he was getting what should have been a rather simple yes or no question. And he he either felt like he was being tricked and wouldn't so wouldn't answer or didn't really know what the answer was. It it was it was weird. But I think it points to the bigger picture of we're still waiting to see what the outcome of Mueller's investigation is and where that all is going. But people have been spending a lot of time speculating about, you know, in a worst case scenario, what can Trump do to excise himself from, I guess, an indictment or from prison or whatever. And that's a question that would ultimately, I think, end up in the Supreme Court's lap. Well, yeah. And I think that the reason why this question, I think, had a a lot of salience to people is that he does have this history of some some sort of divergent writings on executive power. And he had he had worked for Ken Starr's investigation as an independent counsel into President Clinton that led to his impeachment. But then after he left that job, he later worked for the Bush White House. And he he's basically written two law review articles about this stuff and talked about it, that he's basically sort of changed his view and said that he thinks that he wasn't writing about what he thought the constitutional limits were, but he said that he did think that that Congress should think about setting some limits on what sort of investigations can take place of presidents while they're in office. And maybe Congress should pass a law that sort of would defer investigations of president until after they left office. And so when, when that comes up and you are nominated to the Supreme Court in the course of this ongoing Mueller investigation, it it makes particularly Democrats in the minority really, really suspicious about giving a vote to this person who also has refused to say that he would recuse himself from any cases on this matter. That was another question that was asked of him on Wednesday. And so when you put all of that together, it's sort of leads Democrats to sort of want to pursue every angle they can to try and nail him down on these questions and any any discussions he's had about them. So how does this play out then? Like, what do you like? What, what's going to happen? 
Tell me the future. He's going to join the Supreme Court and he will be the ninth justice. I mean, absent something really, really unexpected happening um, in the absence of some bombshell document that's released over the weekend. The votes aren't there right now for the Democrats to stop it, unless Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or Jeff Flake or Ben Sass, unless they change their mind on this candidate, this nominee, he will probably be confirmed by it. It sounds like the schedule they're looking at would be before the end of the month. I want to talk directly about executive power. There is a real question that There's a real question that senators were poking at in the last week about whether or not Judge Kavanaugh believes that a sitting president should be investigated and prosecuted. Yeah, the the thing is that Brett Kavanaugh has some of the most experience of a a lawyer alive today with these issues. He worked for Ken Starr's investigation of President Clinton when Ken Starr was in independent counsel, which led eventually to his impeachment. He then worked in the White House Counsel's Office for George W. Bush. He was there in the, the a big point of the hearings this week. He was there on September 11th. He was there dealing with the aftermath of September 11th. And then he's been a, a federal judge, an appellate judge on the D.C. Circuit for the past dozen years, dealing with a lot of questions of the role of government. And The question while the special counsel is looking into these things is, where is he going to fall out on this? Are those views about what Congress should do going to be a part of the way that he feels the Constitution itself limits what government can do? That was Chris Geidner, Zoe Tillman and Shawnee Hilton. If you want to stay in the loop about all things courts, you have to follow Zoe and Chris on Twitter. Text JoJo the word hearing to 929-236-9577 and they will send you the links to their Twitter accounts. Did you know that anti-vaxxers are not just a movement in the U.S.? Cases of measles in Europe have reached the highest this decade. The measles outbreak in Ukraine last week. Italy has introduced one of the toughest vaccine measures in the world. Comme en France, seul 80% de la population est vaccinée contre la rougeole. And they are developing measles. Rischi, tra virgolette, comporta vaccinarsi. It's true, and there have been 41,000 cases of measles in Europe this year alone. 41,000! We've got science editor Virginia Hughes in the studio and science reporter Dan Vergano on the line to talk through the resistance to vaccines that's spreading through Europe. 40% of people in France are distrustful of vaccines. 25% of people in the Ukraine, which just like blew my mind. Can you talk a little bit about how this movement is different or if it's different in Europe versus the U.S.? It seems to be uh, different in Europe, is what the experts are telling us. Of course, it's hard to know exactly where that comes from, if it's been there all along, or if it's uh, something that sprung up from the Wakefield paper in 1998 and just kind of became widely settled. Talk about that Wakefield paper. This is Andrew Wakefield in 1998, and why is this important? So this paper comes out in The Lancet, and it's just in a few children. It's about a dozen children. It's suggesting there's a link between uh, autism 
in kids and uh, vaccination uh, results are you know immediately questioned, but also taken up by people who are just becoming aware uh, of autism as a problem and uh, sparks this huge row. It, it turns out that the, the data uh, was suspect, uh, let's put it that way, uh, and the paper was withdrawn, um, Wakefield uh, was censured, um, and you know the, it's basically seen as bad science. And we didn't retract it, right, until years after. Years after, the fact, and there was so. lawsuits, and it is uh, it was a gigantic mess. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting. I knew obviously the the anti vaccine movement here in the U.S. really pounced on that paper, and you think of people like Jenny McCarthy and um, Jim Carrey when they were still together, you know, being champions of this now. Um, disgraced doctor. But you're saying that at the same time, the same paper was also making waves in Europe. Well, obviously, it got huge attention in the UK, which is where the Lancet's based. And there's a Mm. medical press there that picked up on it. And you saw these sort of anti-vaccine campaigners and voices taking it up at the time, you know, and it's yes supporters there. Uh, It wasn't clear how much impact it made throughout the rest of Europe, but they have medical reporters too. And the problem is... um, and looking at distrust across the continent, nobody was doing that until around 2015. Hmm. You mean in terms of like surveys, rigorous surveys? Yeah, surveys. It's rigorous surveys. Yeah. And so we're only now getting a complete picture of opinion uh, in all across all of Europe in a sort of uniform way where, you know, in the U.S. we had that, you know, going back to 1998. Mm-hmm. And so the people who did the Vaccine Confidence Project or did the big survey of Europe that we cited in the story that we just did. You know, they said that there was a little bit of um, resistance from public health officials. There was kind of a feeling of, you know, if we don't make a big deal out of this, it won't become a thing. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that kind of attitude explains a little bit of people's distrust. It was clearly burgeoning and growing to an even greater extent than it is in the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. The way the movement is often portrayed here, I think, is as this wealthy, um, you know, mostly white people and crunchy Montessori schools or Google executives like choosing to not vaccinate their kids. But I think from what I understand, the movement here is actually quite diverse and quite small and fringe, you know, hits all parts of the political spectrum from people like Alex Jones and, you know, free market conservatives telling the government to get out of my business to, you know, the hippie lefty types who want natural, non, no big pharma type stuff. What's your sense of just do we know how big it is here and how influential it is here in in real numbers? In terms of influence, we can say that the the anti-vaccine movement in the U.S. is not very influential. And we know that because something close to 99 percent of toddlers in the United States get their shots. Uh, So while distrust has been measured at something like 18 percent of the population, uh, they aren't uh, changing laws in a big way. But there are uh, these states where you, you can ask for sort of personal conscience objections or other sorts of things. And they tend to be taken advantage of in clusters in some cities. And uh, you see outbreaks of disease in some of those cities. Um, they tie pretty closely. But still, the outbreaks here, you know, the measles outbreak in 2015 was a huge story. It felt like it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And ultimately, what... 120-something cases? About 120 cases. Uh, There was one measles death that year, but it wasn't related to that outbreak. At the same time, in Berlin, there's 600 cases 
and nobody's saying anything. I mean, that's part of the problem in Europe, too. Apparently, is they've just been more blasé about it. Uh, <laughs> they've got 12,000 in Ukraine this year. Yeah, that's just striking. It's just kind of amazing that uh, even though the European health system is regarded as this model of equity and, you know, it's a part of the developed world, you know, you have this going on for what are preventable diseases? You know, mm-hmm. what is a preventable disease? Measles is just incredible. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned in your story that I wanted to get into a little bit is that the anti-vaccine movement in Europe, um, this, this what you're talking about, deep cultural skepticism of medical authorities, mm-hmm. seems mm-hmm. to be especially prominent among poor and marginalized communities. Um, yeah, that. That's a little different than the U.S. Uh, to me, what they described in the reporting is uh, poor communities just being distrustful of uh, vaccination is another thing imposed on them. Mm. In a way, in the U.S., you might not see that kind of resistance in public schools. Uh, in places like France, you have these communities that are, uh, you know, uh, ghettoized where uh, the parents might just refuse to get vaccinations. Uh, it's also part of this populist movement that's striking across Europe, um, just like in the U.S., and you do have uh, politicians in places like Italy um, pulling back from a law requiring vaccinations of kids, saying, like, well, pa- parents don't have to do it. I actually was not vaccinated as a child, and my parents' decision came from a more sort of, like, libertarian conservative bent of... Um, not wanting the government to tell them what to do and also just being very confused by the research and um, not really thinking that it was, if there was any type of risk, like why bother when no one has seen the measles or some of these things for forever? Yeah, that's uh, something you definitely see. And that sort of attitude of, uh, you know, why should I take the risk? Let other people take it if there is any, is part of the reason you see in resistance in Europe as well, I've been told. The whole idea is with vaccinations as you're doing as much for other people as for yourself to try and build up this wall against transmission of the disease. And that's why that's such a dangerous approach to take. But it's a free country. And, and so you see people on all sides of the political spectrum sort of taking that that tack. I, I was thinking about, you know, this idea of the, the other countries affected, France, Italy, um, and sure. this rising populist movement. Obviously, the U.S. is having its own uh, moment with populism, both on the left and the right. And I was wondering if you thought, is what's happening in Europe and the kind of scary level of disease outbreak there, is that possible here? Only locally. I mean, you, you see these uh, weird outbreaks in communities that sort of have slipped under the radar for whatever reason. Um, the uh, community in Minneapolis, I think it was a lot of Somali immigrants. Uh, there have been cases among the Amish so, you you know, and the, the Disneyland case was uh, unvaccinated kids. So you might see these sort of hot spots of uh, people who've uh, communities essentially that have resisted it. But it hasn't become a thing. U.S. You know, President Trump flirted with it at the beginning of his uh, term. Autism has become an epidemic. And we've had so many instances, people that work for me just the other day. Two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and a week later got a tremendous fever, got very, very sick, now is autistic. And uh, got a lot of pushback. And he walked away from that. He didn't put um, any vaxxers on a health council like he was threatening to do or seemed to be threatening to do. And that seemed to be once a wire he didn't want to touch. Hmm. Uh, if you could see a populist like Trump, like, 
getting uh, votes doing that if there was some Midwestern politician who was becoming popular by getting the government off your back that way and that's somehow getting him into office, then you'd really have to worry. But in a certain sense, the immune system of the United States has gotten pretty strong about any vaccine. Although, you know, in our current era, who can say what's going to happen next? Nobody knows anything, right? Who knows? Nobody knows anything, but who knows? Well, I, uh, despite not being vaccinated myself when I was a kid, I did get my daughter vaccinated uh, on schedule. Dan, how about you? Are your, your kids up on their you shots? You bet your ass. Yeah, I'm, I'm not letting my kids get sick. That was Virginia Hughes and Dan Bergamo. If you want to read Dan's story on the anti-vaccine movement in Europe, text JoJo the word vaccine. That's V-A-C-C-I-N-E to 929-236-9577. JoJo's number is also in the show notes for this episode. And now we have fake news you can use with the fake news sleuth you know and love, Jane Litvinenko. Jane Litvinenko, you are here as always a challenger to the fight (laughs) against fake news. I feel like I should have an elite array of Pokemon with me. Ooh, yes. I feel like, okay, let's do this. This is Poke-fake news. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Jane Lipfaninko, you are the ash throwing the poke fake news my way. What have you got for us this week? I hope I hope you catch them all. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, three really fun questions for you this week. Uh, let's start off with the first one. A woman survived for 10 hours in the sea after falling from a cruise ship. Is that real or fake? I'm going to say that that is real, mainly because I can't see how it would be politicized into a fake thing. Like, I don't see how this, like, one story could be nefariously promoted to secretly do something bad. So I'm going to say it's real. (laughs) So you're correct. Yeah. Uh, See? (laughs) Fell off a cruise ship uh, off the coast of Croatia. She was headed for Venice. And uh, she was rescued. She's fine now. There is a picture of her on Facebook drinking drinking a martini. So, you know, (laughs) she's doing well. But it is real. And uh, I don't know. For me, anytime I see a story with a really, like, grabby, can you believe this happened to this person headline? I always do a double take. I'm like, "Hmm, can I believe it? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's pretty believable. I feel like maybe one person falls off a cruise ship every year. At least. It's true. It's true. Especially if it's like a booze cruise. Yeah. I mean, aren't all cruises booze cruises? <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm, I'm one for one. You're one for one. Well done. Okay. All right. Here's the next one. Dozens of men in New York showed up to a fake Tinder date. Is that real or fake? Ooh, I really have no idea about this one. Dozens of men in New York showed up to a fake Tinder date. You know, I'm going to go with my gut here. I think it's real because it seems weird. I don't know. I'm going to say it's real. <laughs> we're playing We're playing fast and it loose with the poke, Pokeballs today. I'm sorry. I don't know anything about Pokemon. Yeah, there was a lot of Pokeballs in New York City in one place. Um... <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> 
Oh, how dare you. I'm so sorry. Yes. Uh, you should be sorry. Yes, Please. this is real. Congratulations. You're two for two. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Please explain, though. I don't understand anything about it. All right. So dozens of dudes showed up to a Tinder date with this lady named Natasha, who basically messaged them to say, hey, uh, my friend is DJing. Do you want to come hang out? Get a drink? Winky face. Um, they all showed up. It was a sausage fest, to quote one of the attendees. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was this hilarious incident until the Gothamist, who first reported this story, found out that it was actually a viral video maker who uh, who got them all there in the first place. Oh, no. This, is, this seems extremely early 2000s. Yeah, right? But also, what a brilliant idea. Like, I think this is the only good use of Tinder. <laughs> is to make viral videos? <laughs> to dupe men. So, in the immortal words of Madeline Holden, uh, dick is abundant and low value. Indeed. I'm so sorry to disappoint you, but uh, this is actually not all the penis news that I have for you today. Oh, God. <laughs> all right. Are you ready for the last question? Sure, why not? I'm never quite ready for you, Jane. <laughs> All right, so this is a little bit visual because it's been posted on a website that has a Fox News logo on it, and it's a Fox News alert. And the headline says, Bloomington police discover over 200 penises during raid at funeral employees' home. Is that real or fake? Oh, I, I, <laughs> sorry, I'm a little bit stunned. <laughs> Police in Iowa discovered dicks in somebody's funeral home thing, right? Yeah, 200 oh. penises during a raid at a funeral employee's home. Oh, God, I have so many questions. But I think what I'm here to do is actually answer the only one, which is, is this real or fake? I'm going to use a piece of Jane Litvinenko advice here, which is that funeral parlor news is one of the factoids that makes fake news spread. It's It feels like a commonality in a lot of fake news. Yeah. And so I'm going to say that this has the trappings of fake news, aside from the fact that it's completely bazanga anyway. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh it's fake. <laughs> Please explain. Um, yeah, Julia, you're exactly right to make a play on this fake news. Here's a tip. Oh, no. I uh, don't believe anything you read about funeral homes. Funeral home news is almost always fake news. I've never read a funeral home headline that was not fake news. Um, Jane, thank you very much. I just want to establish that I have, in fact, caught them all. <laughs> okay, Jane, thank you very much for all of this learning. I really appreciate you. No, thank you for uh, being willing to learn. Always. About penises. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bye, Jane. <laughs> Bye. That was Jane Litvinenko. To take the fake news quiz for yourself, text JoJo the word quiz at 929-236-9577. If you are admiring the smart, interesting people on this week's show who also happen to have vaccinated themselves and their children, text JoJo the word whomst. That's W-H-O-M-S-T. And once you do, JoJo will send you a list of everybody who appeared on this week's episode. And that's our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please, 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 please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts and give us like a billion stars. I'm just I'm just pitching here. A billion. We'd love to shout you out in a future episode. 
And don't forget, if you text JoJo the word Hoomst, you can get a list of everybody in this week's episode and their Twitter handles. This show was produced by the Pod Squad. That's Megan Dietry, Alex Laughlin, Camila Salazar, Ahmed Ali Akbar, and me, Julia Furlan. We also had recording support from honorary Pod Squad member Veronica Doolin. Our boss is Cindy Vanegas Giswale, and our music is by Chad Crouch. If you're ever in scenic Toronto, please choose the all-woman team at Vocal Fry Studios for all your recording needs. You can follow us on Twitter at BuzzFeed Audio, and you can email us at podsquad at buzzfeed.com from you. So tell us everything on your heart. And special thank you to JoJo, as always, who, fun fact, vaccinated themselves against all robot viruses as a baby because they're that smart. And we'll be back on Wednesday with another episode of The News from BuzzFeed News. Dick News.